0: Hi, this is Elliot Williams. This week, we're going to be sharing a bonus episode. At the launch of this series, we held a small event on the theme of our upcoming season with former HUD Secretary Julian Castro, as well as a panel with President and CEO of the NAACP, Derek Johnson, President and CEO of the Roosevelt Institute, Felicia Wong, and President of Community Change, Dorian Warren. We'll be back next week with Chapter 6, North Carolina. Until then, thank you for listening. And don't forget to share this podcast wherever you can. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. My name is Elliot Williams, and I'm, in a former life, I served in the Justice Department in the Obama administration. And these days, you can find me, number one, uh, I'm a principal at the Raven Group. It's a public affairs firm here in Washington, D.C., but also as a legal analyst on CNN. But more importantly and more recently, I joined a really important program, really important project, and that's the as the host of a new podcast called Made to Fail. And that's why we're here today. It's the story of how conservatives deliberate erosion of Americans' institutions. And we sort of tell that in eight parts with each state, each episode occupying one state where we use a case study of conservative power brokers and their longtime efforts to undermine cornerstones of a functioning democracy. Now, this is really striking and salient now as we're in the middle of watching the coronavirus pandemic unfold. What this has done in particular, in, in addition to putting us all uh, at our laptops right now, is really expose the unforgiving um, uh, conduct that we've seen that, that sort of got us here. So from healthcare to unemployment insurance to even the election system itself, and we have episodes on all of these things, the pandemic has exposed the shortcomings of pretty much every facet of American life. Before we get into a a group discussion into some of these issues, I'm honored to introduce a very, very, very special guest who's joined us today to talk about it. So first, I'll hand things over to uh, former HUD secretary and presidential candidate, Julian Castro, to speak about last week, what we saw from the Democrats tonight and this week, what we can expect to see from the Republicans and his thoughts, generally speaking, on what's at stake for the country right now. So uh, Mr. Secretary, Uh, Welcome, and please take it away.
1: Hey, thanks a lot, uh, Elliot. Hello from San Antonio, uh, and congratulations on the new podcast. Thank you for all the great work uh, that you're doing. Uh, Yeah, so look, um, when folks describe this time period in our country's history in the years to come, I can only begin to list the adjectives that they're going to use, unusual, unprecedented, Miss opportunity, tragic. Uh, hopefully though, a turnaround is just around the corner. Last week at the Democratic National Convention, we heard the opposite of what you just laid out in terms of a solution for our country's future, which is to say the Democrats have always believed uh, in America working together to solve our biggest challenges always believed in investing in the people of this country to create uh, opportunity for everybody, whether that's educational opportunity, employment opportunity, housing opportunity, health care opportunity. And last week, uh, Vice President Biden laid out that vision, as well as uh, Senator Harris and a number of other speakers. And this represents a real contrast to the current administration. I want you to think just in a big picture way about what we've seen over the last 15, 20 years. Um, For the last 40 years, we've been sold this idea that the only good government is small and weak government. But you think about moments in the last 15 years like Hurricane Katrina or the Great Recession or now COVID-19 these events that have rocked our nation to different degrees. And the problem was not that we had a government that was too big, that was too uh, effective, too robust. It was that we had a government that was not up to the challenge, that was not robust enough, that was not effective and competent enough. And what the Democrats laid out was a vision for leadership that is competent, that is effective, that is based in community uh, and ultimately is about opportunity for everyone. And with a candidate that represents the polar opposite of Donald Trump, um, where you have in Donald Trump, somebody who has dismissed the coronavirus as a hoax and has paid more attention to right-wing ideology instead of public health and science. Vice President Biden last October uh, released a statement that we were not doing enough Uh, to follow the science and make the investments we needed to make to stay safe. And he and President Obama left a blueprint for how we should handle a pandemic that was thrown out by the Trump administration. When it comes to economic recovery, whereas this administration has stayed on the sidelines in terms of investing enough to prevent evictions and to get people back to work to uh, invest in small businesses, Vice President Biden laid out an agenda to make sure that we're robustly investing in each of those. Uh, And has a track record of that, uh, having worked with President Obama to uh, orchestrate the longest positive job growth streak in our nation's history. And finally, when it comes to the issue of racial and ethnic equality in this country, you have somebody in Donald Trump that is simply the most regressive backward president we've had in a very long time, and somebody in Vice President Biden who has a track record of expanding opportunity for everybody, no matter the color of their skin. So the contrast couldn't be greater. Great. So a couple questions for you while we have
0: you here, if you have another second. So, you know, tell me this, like we just saw in the last, I think in the last day, the Republicans released their party, uh, their platform. And it really was just a rehash of the 2016 platform uh, and really just stating all our platform is is. Acting in furtherance of Donald Trump. My question for you is what do you think the current Republican Party today
1: stands for? Well, that's a great question because Donald Trump is not a president who has stuck by any um, consistent fidelity to what people would consider conservative principles, um, you know, in terms of whether it's spending or it's uh, character or the uh, you know, the local control on certain issues. This is a president who has gone his own way uh, and I don't think has stayed true to any kind of principles, including conservative principles. And so what you have is a Republican Party today that is more like a cult, um, a cult of personality of Donald Trump instead of one that is based on uh, these conservative principles of smaller government, of uh of you know uh strong defense of lower taxes and so forth it really is a party that is lost in the wilderness right now and at the behest of one man who has a total grip on it so let me ask you a follow-up question right there
0: you as someone from texas certainly have worked with republicans and had to uh, over the years uh you know it's a red-ish or purplish. ish State Right. And so the question is, you seem to be suggesting that conservative principles themselves may not be bad, uh, presumptively, but just how they're employed to the harm of people might be the problem.
1: Right. Well, I mean, look, I obviously uh, I don't subscribe to conservative principles and I have a disagreement with them. But I mean, let's take the conventions. Right. I mean, folks, some folks will remember who are watching uh, Ronald Reagan's uh, time for choosing speech that he gave for Barry Goldwater in 1964 that basically created one of the foundational blueprints for modern presidential politics in terms of what are conservative principles. If you listen to that speech and then you compare that to what Donald Trump has embraced, you know, you, you can't find a consistency there. And so I think the message for conservatives is look, you can have your conservative principles and certainly there are, uh, presidents and elected officials that have embraced those that have been faithful to them, whether we agree with them or not. But this is not a man. Donald Trump is not a man who fits that bill. Uh, He is somebody who is going to do whatever he thinks it takes to win, embrace whatever principle or lack of principle, integrity or lack of it, in order to prevail, whatever he sees in his own self-interest and not in the interest of the American people.
0: And that's kind of you know I was sort of asking the question on both sides right now because it's kind of the point of the podcast that we started in the first place, which is yes uh, one can have a difference of opinion. There's certainly a, mo- a marketplace of ideas and so on. But what we've seen over these decades is essentially setting up systems that are designed to fail and that actually are, are just, frankly just, just mean, um, particularly as we see now in, in the. Uh, you know in the midst of a, the coronavirus pandemic let me ask you how are things in San Antonio right now it's sort of it's an open-ended question of how are you doing
1: uh, I'm doing well uh, other than sitting in about a hundred degree heat right now <laughs> uh, I am doing very well uh, my family and I are, are staying healthy and uh, keeping busy you know one of the silver linings for me has been that the past, 14, 15 months had really been before this virus had been all about traveling out on the campaign trail. And a silver lining has been a lot more time to spend with my daughter, Karina, who's 11, and my son, Christian, uh, who's five. My wife, Erica, uh, she is now working. She works in one of the school districts here, so back at work. And uh, I'm managing uh, their virtual Zooms for class. Uh, every day because they've started school back up. So we're keeping busy, you know, balancing that with everything else. But,
0: you know, fortunate for the fact that you, we, many of us can frankly afford to um, sort of duty and caring for kids and so on. Can you just speak about that sort of the inequality we're seeing right now with respect to parents putting their kids back to school or even everybody um, trying to create some sense of normalcy uh, in a world that is completely abnormal right now?
1: Well, this is this is a tremendous challenge to so many families. I mean, it's hard enough if you are a family of means, but so much harder for families that are already struggling. And this is different levels from the fact that we have a digital divide that right now is being felt more than ever before when many of our students have to rely on virtual learning and don't have access to the internet at home or to sometimes devices or even if they were just provided with devices by a school district are not they or their parents are not familiar yet with how to use them Uh, we also have a lot of families right now that are facing the threat of eviction because the federal eviction moratorium that covered about a fourth of renters um, and covered homeowners many homeowners those have expired many state and local eviction moratoria have expired and even though Uh, Democrats in the House of Representatives passed the Heroes Act a couple of months back. Mitch McConnell and the Republicans have not, uh, uh, they have not uh, approved it and they haven't provided a compelling alternative to make those investments to protect people from eviction. Uh, And at the same time, we still have millions of people out of work and that's causing a tremendous amount of stress when people have not received another stimulus payment since a few months ago. You add all of that up. And for me as a father, what I think about are the impacts on those kids. Here, we're asking our children to learn in a new environment, sometimes at a disadvantage uh, because they don't have the tools. And then, with the stress of knowing, uh, feeling so much uncertainty about what's going to happen to them and their parents, it, uh, you know, all of this should motivate people both to continue to push our policymakers to make those investments we need to make in families and working families, and also to have a plan to go vote in November.
0: Thank you for that optimistic, mystic, optimistic message looking forward. I'll, I'll say one bit of pessimism, just one tiny, tiny bit of pessimism. And I think you would agree with me on this. We did not need to be here. Um, and we certainly as a nation did not need to reach the point. Now, obviously, you, we, we can't make a pandemic go away you know, it's a biological process and so on. But I, I just let you to comment on whether, or just agree with the premise as I would hope you would, that this was horribly mismanaged largely by conservatives at the federal and state levels. Um, and we could have mitigated the circumstances we're in at least somewhat.
1: Well, of course, I mean, just compare the United States to every other country in the world, uh, the United States Because of the poor leadership of uh, Donald Trump and I'll add some poor leadership around the country from governors in places like Florida, Texas, my home state, Arizona, a number of others who put right-wing ideology over science and public health, we have had a pandemic that has lasted longer, uh, that has hit our economy harder and has led to more deaths more hospitalizations and more infections than other countries around the world at a greater rate when the United States is supposed to be the nation of the greatest means, greatest scientific advances, uh, you know, healthcare system that should have the capacity to serve people. There is no excuse except that this administration got a late start because it had this See no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil approach to the virus. Instead of facing the facts, uh, it still did not make the investments that it should have made with the urgency that it should have moved to to combat the spread of the virus, and has been unwilling even to uh, make the investments afterward so that we have enough testing and contact tracing in place. On top of that, we've had a president who has. You know, gone out of his way to suggest to people that, you know, they can go about their business for the longest time refusing to wear a mask, addressing the coronavirus at his rallies as though it were a hoax and just something made up by Democrats. And last week at the DNC, there was a very compelling story that was told by a young woman named Kristen Urquiza from Arizona, who talked about her father, who contracted the coronavirus. He was 65. Uh, a supporter of Donald Trump. Uh, He listened to Trump, who downplayed the impact of this virus. He went and, you know, got together with with his buddies, did not take the precautionary measures that one should take because Trump made him and others believe that it wasn't such a big deal. Then he caught the virus and unfortunately he lost his life. And we've heard other stories just like that. Uh, It's been said, you know, many times and it's true, look, you can't blame Donald Trump for the existence of the coronavirus, but what you should put at his feet and this administration is that the terrible mismanagement of the response to this pandemic has stretched it out longer, has cost more lives and has cost more jobs and economic hardship.
0: And sort of as we've said and why we're here is talking about the fact that we're seeing so many systems strained uh, under the weight of that pandemic. Secretary Castro, thank you so much for everything you've done for the nation, for your service, for your voice on the campaign trail, but also for lending your time today. This was uh, cogent and coherent, and it's just so
1: wonderful to, to talk to you and hear you speak all the time. Hey, uh, thanks a lot. Good luck. When I swept it with the podcast, <laughs> all
0: right? <Take laughs> you said that being. Uh, that might have been near uh, the limit of my Spanish, but... Uh, uh, he did give me an opportunity to go there. So thank you so much. So now s- switching from uh, the secretary, we we continue to have an all-star panel of people to uh, dig into some of these issues, some of these failures we've talked about, but also more importantly, the optimism, the path forward. So let me uh, introduce who else is joining us here today. In addition to Secretary Castro, we've got Felicia, Felicia Wong. She's President and CEO of the Roosevelt Institute, and also President of Roosevelt Forward. Felicia, hello. Thank
2: you. Uh,
0: of course, Derek Johnson, President and CEO of the NAACP. Uh, Mr. Johnson, Derek, how are you? Thank
2: you.
3: Of course, and the Dorian Warren, uh, uh, President of Community Change. How are you? Sir? Hi there. Hi there, Elliot. Thanks for having me on, and good luck with the show and the podcast. Very exciting. Thanks. And always good to see. It's always good to see everybody. But I know Dorian a while. so. Uh, Hey everybody,
0: but let's use this opportunity today to sort of think about a way through, right? And what is the way out of the crisis for some of our listeners? So first for you, Felicia, and then anybody else who wishes to respond by all means, go ahead. But what do you think we need to do to navigate our way out of this crisis, even in spite of frankly deliberate erosion of some of our institutions and the middle of an election year?
4: I think what we really need is, a very positive vision and way forward. Now the good news is that the economics tell us that there is actually a way to invest in our future to match or marry the fact that we have so much unemployment with so much work that actually needs to be done. We can bring those things together to actually put people to work as Franklin Roosevelt did on things that um, our country desperately needs. Caring economy, real investment there, um, an investment in decarbonizing our uh, our economy, decarbonizing our energy systems. So, really, I think a kind of big investment that I can imagine coming from Democrats, a big public investment, a big role for the federal government in setting a North Star towards a transformed economy, a kind of Green New Deal that will provide a just transition and real jobs to the 30 million Americans who are out of work. Um, That's something that I can actually, I can literally imagine it. And I can imagine not only what it would be like to like, drive a cool electric car and, you know, have a great solar powered home and go to a great solar powered office. Actually the hardest thing to imagine right now is going to an office. Uh, But I can imagine all that, but I can also imagine that in a way that um, is racially inclusive, which means that people who have not for generations really had a chance at full participation in our labor market, women, immigrants, black Americans actually can, you know, kind of step into this sort of new American dream. Now, most of this show, I think, is going to be about all of the reasons that that has been really hard to get to, including the stories that we tell ourselves about why that can't be. But um, Elliot, since you invited us to start with, you know, something that we need to imagine to get out of this crisis, that's where I'd like to start.
3: You have to go further. We need to organize. (laughs) We have to organize to win those ideas. And that also requires political engagement. So we have to both protest and cause good trouble, but we also have to vote. And then you just repeat all those things, right? Vote ideas, organizing, protesting, voting, repeat, repeat, repeat. So maybe I could sum it up this way. Policies, laws, rules, are just simply power relations frozen in a moment in time. And so we have to use the people power we have on our side to shift the power equation to really push back on this 40 years of conservative delegitimizing of the role of government, of frankly, plunder and grift, as we're seeing these days in the headlines almost every day. So we need all those things together. We need the people power, though, to actually win.
0: So uh, Derek Johnson, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts too on the big picture question of what we need to fix, what ails us right now.
2: No, anytime we cast a, a negative vision, we lose. Elections are one, in my opinion, five words or less. Uh, yes, we can. A message of hope, people are inspired. You can move the needle of the people power. Uh, uh, make America great, great again, a message of fear. A regressive message without a hope message to counter uh, the voices of the majority lose out. And it is that cycle, but I will add the cycle more like this. It is moving from protest to power at the ballot box and from the ballot box to public policy implementation to address some of the systemic uh, issues that have confronted our uh, collective communities, but specifically for the black community, to address systemic and structural racism that have really plagued this nation for decades. Far too often, looking at FDR, who was perhaps one of the greatest strategists in terms of public policy implementation, even when we got many of the New Deal policies, Black folks were left out. So Social Security, uh, it was perhaps one of the greatest pieces of legislation passed, but Southern legislators were able to put the clause in there that domestic and workers and agricultural workers would be left out. 80% of black folks were domestic and agricultural workers. So we were left out of that that profound piece of public policy. So even when we get good public policy, if you if you get it to move, you don't have a racialized land, if you don't have a land to include, that's inclusive of Native Americans or Latinos, we can have both success and failure at the same time. So it is we will protest to power the ballot box, then public policy implementation, and then from there, making sure that it's inclusive of the communities that we represent.
0: Each night of this week's convention has a different theme. You know, one is land of opportunity, one's land of promise, and so on. I'd love to hear what your sort of messaging-wise, what are you anticipating hearing coming out of the Republicans this week?
3: There is no consistent philosophy. You, can say, you can't say it's about making America great again at a time of COVID and economic distress and social unrest. It's just not credible. When you don't have actual ideas, you don't have animating ideas or policy proposals or organizing principles, then you get some predictable things. You get fear, you get division, and particularly the mobilization of white racial resentment um, you get lying and cheating, you get the attempt to delegitimize democracy itself, and you get crazy conspiracy theories, including the re-emergence of birtherism around the selection of Kamala Harris, Senator Kamala Harris, as a vice presidential candidate. So that actually goes to a fundamental question I'll be looking for this week, and that is, who belongs? Who belongs in our democracy? Who belongs in the Republican Party? Uh, and I, I, I think the answer will frankly be, white people (laughs) we can judge by the speakers we can judge by the rhetoric
0: um taking it out of the theoretical what how do you think people are harmed by some of these things that we just talked about the racism the birtherism the nativism the division the lying and so on how how does that actually trickle down to people's lives
4: all of these Republican or conservative policies, conservative policies, let me put it that way, because I think you can blame both parties to some degree, have actually hurt people. You see 30 million Americans without health care, six million Americans have lost their health care in this pandemic that has been, as your podcast says, by design. We have the worst unemployment insurance amongst all uh, industrialized nations. We have less paid leave. We have all of these social insurance, our, our social safety net is thin by design and that is why people are food insecure, Without work and without certainty as to what's going to happen to their kids in just a few weeks in school.
0: So, you know, you touched on uh, Bush in 1988 and Willie Horton. Um, at the risk of making this a political science class or making this about Trump versus Biden, that's a very powerful moment in American political history. Why does that work? What is it about racial resentment? that makes it so powerful in election years or all the time? Will it be as successful in 2020 as it was clearly in 1988?
2: Fear and resentment. I understand. Elections is about emotions. It's not about facts. It's not about intellectualism. It's all emotions. And if you look at Southern politics, they perfected the art of running emotional campaigns based on fear. Uh, fear that was wedded in racial identity, wedded in morality, but in some cases, uh, wedded in regionalism, us against them, tribalism. Uh, And in that model, you can really capture a large audience of working poor whites and working class whites. Uh, When we begin to see the consolidation of the conservative movement uh, after Barry Goldwater uh, with movement conservative, uh, they had the intellectuals in the, in the party, they had the business interests, but they did, that wasn't enough to win the elections. They really had to get the Dixiecrats, And the Southern way of doing politics have long been to play the lowest common denominator, fear tactics. And so I live in Mississippi. I, I've seen this for years. Actually, I was appalled by it when I moved here from Detroit. And it has been a, a great uh, uh, lesson for me to learn that it's all about emotionalism. And so I, I suspect this campaign, I mean, this—I uh, not only the campaign, but the next few days of this convention will be all about emotionalism. And unfortunately, when you when you run programs based on emotion and you know facts, it really is, doesn't matter, you're going to hear some of the wildest stuff come out. Uh, you know, it's not the coronavirus, it's the Chinese virus. It's not uh, uh, the the uh, factual statement that Black Lives Matter is a Marxist organization. Black Lives Matter. They're going to create all of these narratives that are not, not that are not true. But we notice also well that all of a sudden Confederate soldiers were patriots and not traitors to the country. All of a sudden we should erect monuments to celebrate their heroic effort, although they took arm up arms against this nation. All of a sudden a Confederate flag became a flag of heritage although it, was, it wasn't even the original uh, flag of the Confederacy, it was a flag of the Northern Army of Virginia, and General Lee said on his death that there should be only one flag, that's the United States flag. But all of that goes out the door because it becomes about emotion. And this administration has shown us more than anything else. The fact is something that we care about, but for the base that they are put to, it's all about fear. And the fear is about emotion.
0: And how could I forget, uh, we uh, later on in an episode of the podcast, we go to Minnesota and talk about policing and talk about the Willie Horton ad and that sort of what that meant and how that level of resentment starts in the South. But, you know, again, we're talking Minnesota here, spreads throughout the country and sort of uh, almost baked into uh, the essence of America now. You know, Um, if if you think about
2: Berkeley. If you think about Birth of a Nation, Birth of a Nation started that nationalization of racial hatred in a way that started, I mean, accelerated in a way in which no one could have predicted. 1915, the movie come out, Woodrow Wilson shows it in the White House. By 1930, there are more members of the Klan in Indiana and Michigan than there are in Georgia and Mississippi and Alabama. The images that are projected on the screen is how people view themselves, how they see you, and if you create a us versus them, a set of tribalisms, even individuals in 1930 who were not even considered white, Irish and others, who were not even considered white, all of a sudden began to rally around a social construct that was inclusive of them, although they were excluded from the original construct.
0: Um, you
2: know, one, one of the pieces in the, the Republican platform now is to vote to denounce SPLC because they uh, track racial hate groups. So I, I, I'll be quiet there. I mean, it, we're about to look at, we're about to see some wild stuff, but we have to embrace over the next 71 days and win and win big.
0: So let me turn to Felicia. We haven't heard from you in a second. And most important, and this is gonna be, I wanna hear everybody's thoughts on this because this is such a critical, point, um, this: the fact that it's 2020, the fact that it's an election year, and you've all independently of each other said the word voting at some point in your various comments today. But our own election, the national election approaching in November, and it's going to be unprecedented, the conditions we'll face, what in all of your estimation should state leaders be doing now to ensure that the country has safe and secure elections and i'll just go down the row. so on my screen felicia you're first and then let's talk to dorian and then let's uh talk to derek
4: um well first and foremost we have to do everything we can to support all of the secretaries of state and all of the voting groups who are trying to make it clear that we need to that people need to register and that people need to go ahead and vote by, you know, vote by mail or vote in person, but making sure that people understand that voting this year is entirely possible and more important than ever. So I think that is um, that is one essential thing that state leaders can do. The other thing that I think that state leaders and all of us can do is to make sure that we understand that the person who wins this election is going to be the person who holds on the longest. So we absolutely must make sure that we are prepared if necessary for a long fight and that fight needs to be uh, on multiple levels. It has to be obviously legal but also movement and even policy focus. We need to continue to make the case for progressive policies that will improve on conservative policies, even if we have an interregnum period or some kind of uncertain period after November 3rd.
0: Let me just, uh, cause I didn't quite understand your point. When you say who holds on the longest, what precisely did you mean there?
4: Well, if it is unclear after November 3rd, exactly who has won the election, given the various ways in which we count votes in this country at the state level, electoral college, popular, et cetera, uh, I think fortitude and uh, basically refusing to concede are going to be extraordinarily important as we, uh, if this drags on for a long time.
0: Got it. Uh, same question. Um, this is the open-ended: How do we ensure safe and secure elections, Dorian? So let's ask you that right now.
3: I think it's it's an all hands on deck. I agree with everything Felicia said about particularly state officials, uh, election registrars, secretaries of state, making sure that people can vote whether by mail or in person safely and have. You know, I suspect in some places. I've been hearing stories out of Georgia, for instance, that there will be long lines. So making sure that people are safe, that they have equipment, uh, personal protective equipment, maybe water, chairs, whatever it takes. So that's not only just for elected officials. That's for a lot of us who are going to be volunteering on Election Day to ensure that people's voices are heard and making sure that you're safe, that people have everything they need. Let me add two other things, though, Elliot, to the question. Um, Remember, it's not just who's at the top of the ticket that matters. It's also all the way down the ballot. District attorneys, local elected officials, particularly as we've just are hearing in the last 24 hours of yet another example of police violence against black people in Kenosha, Wisconsin. District attorneys and prosecutors are very important. Don't get as much attention as the top of the ticket, but all those races up and down the ticket are important. Also the census, that is another way to exercise your voice and power. If you have not filled out your census form yet, fill out your census form because that will set the table for governance and resources for the next decade. And it's not a coincidence that this current administration is trying to both suppress the vote and suppress the census, and especially of Black and brown folks. So I would add the census to this mix as part of voting. And then remember, after election day, it's not over. We still have to be ready to mobilize and organize and show up for making sure we have an accurate count, and that this current occupant of the White House accepts the results of the election, as well as holding elected officials accountable. We cannot go home and assume that our job is, as voters is over after Election Day. Here's
0: a follow-up question just for you before I get to Derek. You know, you say this is what we need. How confident are you that we will have it?
3: Well, uh, it depends on what we do between now, Let, let me say it this way, it depends on how much good trouble we make in the spirit of the Honorable John Lewis from now to Election Day to make sure that the resources that states need to conduct a fair election get into their hands immediately. There is a reason why the Republicans and the President are slow walking getting any additional resources to states to be able to enact fair and free voting.
0: Got it. Okay. Derek, voting.
2: <laughs> so we've done a series of focus groups in targeted areas of African-American communities. And what we are noticing is a high enthusiasm level for participation, but it's generated by uh, the imposing threat that they see from this administration uh, which is why we begin to talk about vote our lives depend on it or we're done dying, because many African-Americans across the country, particularly in key states, understand the importance of voting. There'll be an all out of salt on access to the polling place, whether uh, by mail, in person, early. And so what we're doing in ACP is trying to double down and increase voter turnout. I always say uh, in absence of policy reform, uh, to strengthen election administration, the biggest weapon we have is increased voter turnout. Uh, because this is a game of inches, not miles. And so we have to uh, double down on our efforts to increase voter turnout, particularly those individuals who voted in 2008 and 2012 but that, who did vote in 2016. Uh, in addition to that, after this election cycle, no matter who wins, we must uh, do an uh, uh, aggressive campaign to reform democracy, especially the administration of election. Our elections uh, administration should not be such a partisan encounter that it, it, that is dependent on who is in office to determine whether or not access to voting uh, is allowed. Uh, Australia, 96% of the population voting. Canada, close to 92 Germany, 93% of the eligible population voting, and we celebrated 60% of African—I mean, of, of Americans vote. That's not representative democracy. That's controlled democracy, and we need to work towards a representative democracy. So increase turnout. But then uh, I think it, it could have been FDR who said that no matter who gets an elect- elected, even if they agree with us, we still got to make them do it.
0: Are there any other major policies driven by conservatives that have set the public up to fail. Uh, (laughs)
3: Let me count the ways, Elliot. (laughs) COVID-19, we have just a snake oil salesman with magic elixirs. Racial injustice, it's law and order. Economic catastrophe, to paraphrase a recent book by Paul Pearson and Jacob Hacker, Let Them Eat Tweets don't offer people actual assistance. Climate change, deny. Infrastructure, nothing. Childcare, you're on your own. Immigration, you build a magical wall, you close the borders, and then you make profit, if you're Steve Bannon, from trying to, again, sell this thing to some suckers in your base. Housing, you're on your own. Nothing on student debt or college tuition. You just cheat, by the way, if you're rich to get into the university, but nothing to pay for it. And then of course on healthcare, just repeal the ACA with no replacement. That is what's on offer from modern conservatives in their current Republican party.
0: Uh, if, um, unfortunately I can't speak in emoji, but I would just be fire, fire, fire uh, in response to what you just said there. Uh, Derek, um, anything else, any other major policies that we haven't hit here that you'd identify?
2: Uh, student loan debt crises, uh, but ditto. I mean, this is a group who are seeking uh, for all system failure for the purpose of private, privatizing as much as possible to maximize profit or deregulate as much as possible so there are no accountability for polluting the earth, exploiting people for cheap labor, and taking advantage of a system uh, that we are looking at with the snake oil salesman. Uh,
0: and Felicia Wong, you have the first and last word uh, of today's panel. So I'll, I'll give that to you here.
4: Well, it's hard to add anything to what Dorian and Derek um, and you have said, except I will just point out schools, right? Schools. Perhaps nothing is more visceral, more basic, and more painful than the deeply, deeply segregated Elementary and uh, secondary school systems that we live with in our country. Literally, if you're a parent and you would like to send your kid to a high quality, multi racial school, it's very hard to find anywhere in America where you can do that. And that is also by design.
0: Uh, we've got to leave it there. Thank uh, the three of you so much for being here. Derek Johnson, uh, Dorian Warren, Felicia Wan. Thank you for your insights, but also your contributions to the community. You've all uh, had wonderful long careers of advocacy and activism um, and thought and content production and whatever you want to call it. And so thank you so much for all of that. So, Thank, uh, you, thank you, Elliot.
4: Thank of you.
0: Made to Fail is produced by The Hub Project, Goat Rodeo, and Roosevelt Forward. From The Hub Project, executive producer is Laura Hetalski. Producers are Sasha Stone, Zach Price, Sophie Elliott, and Dan Crawford. Arkadi Gurney is executive director. From The Goat Rodeo team, executive producer is Megan Nadalski. Producers are Shard Dreyer and Zachary Frank. Ian Enright is chief executive officer. From Roosevelt Forward, our senior producer is Steph Sterling. Our host, that's me, is Elliot Williams. Thanks to the Collective Agency for their hard work on producing our Facebook Live event. Special thanks to our event panelists Julian Castro, Derek Johnson, Felicia Wong, and Dorian Warren for sharing their expertise. To learn more about how conservative policies have set up millions of Americans for failure in the face of a crisis, visit madetofail.org. Subscribe to Made to Fail on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app so you don't miss the next episode. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating or review and share it with your friends. And if you want to continue the conversation online, find us on social media. We're at Made to Fail on Twitter and Facebook and Made to Fail Podcast on Instagram. Thanks for listening. Next time on Made to Fail.
2: The governor says that Medicaid expansion won't cost the state anything. The Senate leader says there's no such thing as free money. Someone always has to pay. 37 states have now expanded Medicaid. Here in North Carolina, you know this isn't about politics. This is about people's lives. This is about people's businesses. This is about the future. Senate leader defended the decision not to include Medicaid expansion. And it's been our uh, opinion that uh, taking on that additional obligation is not something that uh, makes fiscal sense for us. You know, the fact that we have no real conversation is probably what bothers me the most.